together. And so, Lord, we praise you that for that. We thank you for that. And I pray that we would not take that gift of yours lightly, especially in a culture that's becoming increasingly dark. As you pull back to the screen, we pray for the preachers. We pray that you would be at work in their lives and their hearts, I think, for protection over the family. And I pray for your protection over the school, over the students, over the professors. We pray that there would be a long-lasting and spreading effect of having a Bible-believing seminary in Guatemala City. I pray that that would spread out and begin to affect the businesses that are surrounded, the families that surround it, the families of the students who attend. Father, we pray for a spreading effect from the influence of people. So we do pray for Guatemala. Just as I pray that you would have a preserving and purifying effect on this country through the lives of the men and women who are obedient to, to Jesus Christ. We pray Amen. Had a good trip. Didn't have to swim across the Rio Grande or anything. In fact, it was a... I snuck across the border. Undocumented. Once you say you're undocumented, then they give you all the instructions to get welfare and everything else. So. This morning we're going to start a new portion of the book of Romans, and as I've been mentioning in the emails, a very, very important part of the book of Romans, not that it's any less important than any of the others, but this one gets closer to home. We've been dealing with issues relating to the unbeliever, and Paul is laying out his theology, essentially, in terms of at least soteriology, but as we've seen, touching on a lot of other areas as well. But the Christian life, as we've seen in chapter 5, he already transitions and gives us some hints of what's going to come, but it actually begins in chapter 6. And just as we've seen in other passages, that uh, this is directed at the believers who resided in the city of Rome. And I usually start with a little photograph of some aspect of Rome, the Colosseum here. A lot of Christians lost their lives there in the first century, stood up for what they believed and suffered the consequences of that under the Roman government. And in the Colosseum, now this is after Paul, it was built after Paul, but still first century, there was a lot of uh, persecution of the early church. So what you believe is very, very important. In fact, we'll see that very early on in the passage. So this morning, what I want to do is give you kind of an introduction to this whole area of what we normally refer to as the Christian life. Theologically, it falls under the category of sanctification. So I'm going to give you a little introduction to sanctification. And we're in the portion of the book of Romans where God has provided righteousness for the humanity that lacks righteousness, and because we have no righteousness of our own, nothing that we can offer, nothing we can do, our best efforts are filthy rags, Isaiah says. 
we stand condemned before a holy God. So we looked at that already. We completed the portion that deals with how do we enter into that relationship with a holy God. Theologically, and in the book of Romans, it's called justification. And that's the reason I believe, well, one of the reasons, there's a lot of other reasons, why I believe this is written to believers. Even though it addresses issues to the unbeliever, it's very theological. It uses theological terms, so we need to understand them. In the first century, the believers understood these things as they were taught biblical concepts, some of them from the Old Testament. So they were familiar with some of these terms. They're legal, legal terms. Condemnation is a legal term. Justification is a legal term. And in some ways, not so much legal, but theological is the concept of sanctification. So we're going to look at that concept. It runs through chapter 6 through 8, with a little bit of transition in chapter 5. So, first off, some of the concepts, some of the ideas that we'll touch on, they present questions in our thinking, and I believe there are a lot of believers that don't really know what the Christian life is all about. So we'll deal with some of that in the introduction, but just kind of a quick overview, some of the things we want to try to answer, some of the questions that might arise How do you actually live? Very basic. In fact, this is fundamental and basically what we will focus in on. How do you live the Christian life? Not everyone understands that. There's a lot of misconceptions. And I would say a lot of misconceptions even within a Bible teaching church. So that's the fundamental question we want to answer. Another question dealing with living the Christian life that is commonly thought. Well, now that I'm a believer, do I need to go to church more? Where does that fit in? And in fact, is that what the Christian life is all about? Going to Christian meetings more, Bible studies more? How does that fit in? And there's a lot more to it than that, as we'll see. And another question is, what is spirituality? Even the unbeliever has a concept of spirituality, but it's like anything else, they have a false and distorted idea as to what it is. There are some people, in fact, a lot of unbelievers say, well, I don't go to church, I just go to the mountains, I just commune with nature, I just sense the presence of God when I'm amongst his creation. That's my spirituality. So all the way from pantheism, where nature is God, or God is all, universe is God, God is the universe, all the way to other false ideas and false religions. So what is the concept from scripture of spirituality? What does that mean? So we want to spend some time looking at that. Is there a secret formula to living the Christian life? A lot of seminars, a lot of preachers, you might say, or books that are written, the secret to the Christian life. Is there a secret to it? Is there something that we have to kind of explore that's hidden that only a select few know about? And when you go pay your money and go to the seminar, you learn the secret? Well, I would say, I think most of you would answer that no. It's clear and it's visible from Romans 6 through 8. Another question, so we've already, we can scratch that one off. (laughs) We've answered that one. How do we get a spiritual life? Where does it come from? 
Well, we've already answered part of that in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5. It comes as a result of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul emphasized that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. So the unbeliever has a spiritual life, but it's dead. There's a deadness about it. And the last part of Romans emphasized that it, that deadness is as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve with the emphasis on Adam. So where do we get it? Well, first of all, it starts with a relationship. But how do we maintain it and how do we enjoy it? How do we live it? That's Romans 6 through 8. Do I now just try to do good things now that I've received spirituality, now that I am a believer? Well, I'm going to touch on that today and start to answer it. But Paul spends almost an entire chapter answering that question, or at least half of that chapter, answering where does good works fit in or where does doing good things? Am I now compelled to do all those lists of things that are called Christian? Is that what it means to live the Christian life? Well, I think there's more to it than that. In fact... Part of this is a distorted view of what the Christian life is all about. You always have to have seven things, right, for completeness. So what are the goals for the Christian? In other words, now that my life should be changed in some sense, at least positionally, we've been talking about that concept. God views us from a different perspective, and yet I feel, I seem... I act almost the same as I did before. Well, what are some of these goals that I should aspire to that is called the Christian life? So these are things that we want to look at, and many others. These are just kind of some of the major ones that we'll consider. So what do I want to endeavor? In other words, what should I be doing, let's say, or how should I be living now that I've made that commitment of faith? So these are some of the answers we want to answer as we go through these six chapters. And today what I want to do is give you kind of an overview of everything that we're going to do. So if you die tomorrow, at least you know what the Christian life is all about. So we have all the answers, but we have to quit. <laughs> yeah, you'll have all the answers. That's not to say that you should be tempted not to come back, <laughs> since you know it all already. We'll add detail as we go. But... So in this overview, first of all, there are different ways or approaches, very common. As we go through the study, I'm going to give you some other more theological ideas relating to sanctification, but some of the more common ideas that I think are not biblical, except for the last one. Let me give you an overview of that, and it might alert you as to what People around you are attempting to do, and then it'll give you insight into how to help them. So number one, let me give you a theological term. I'll let you figure it out. Antinomianism. Anyone heard about that word, that theological term? Some of you. Break it down, and you can figure out what it means. Remember we talked about namas, the Greek word namas. Anyone remember that? What's namas, our Greek scholar? Law. 
Okay, namas is law. Remember I gave you kind of a biblical concept of what the Bible, how it uses the word law. In the book of Romans, it uses that word in, I don't remember, nine different ways at least. So anti is what? <laughs> against something. So against, what does antinomianism mean? Against the law or against the concept of standards or rules, you might even say. And there is freedom in Christ. That is biblical. In fact, that's what we've been looking at. We are free, and we're going to emphasize that in chapter 6. There's a freedom that God has given us. We can come before God in peace. And in fact, if we don't know Christ in a personal way, we don't have peace. We might have temporary little glimpses of it, but in general, we're... We're not where we're at, and conscience kind of leaves us wanting, you might say. We're unsatisfied with everything around us. So we don't have peace, but if we do, we are released from that old way. and We're given a new way, so we have a new capacity. In fact, a new nature. We'll talk some more about that. So some have come up with the idea, in fact, this is the first issue that Paul is going to deal with here in the book. This concept, it was common in the first century, obviously, because what does he say? He, in chapter five, he started to talk about being under grace and the freedom that we have under God's grace. And the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased in the life of the unbeliever, that made grace more evident. And what he says at the end of verse 20, grace abounded all the more. 21, that as sin reigned in death, we were dead spiritually, as well as all of the components of that comprehensive death. This is the death, the death of Genesis 3. Even so, grace might reign. And this is what he's going to show us. How do we let grace reign now, now that we are believers through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 6, what shall we say then? If grace is magnified and made more evident, or grace has been poured out in us, isn't it kind of logical that now as I'm a believer, I can continue sinning, and the more I sin, the more grace will be evident? Well, there's truth to that. But that's not what God intends, and that's not what the Christian life is all about. So in verse 1, what shall we say then? If grace is so magnificent, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And Paul raises that probably because you get a hint from the first century, even the life of Christ. Christ presented grace. In other words, he offered a grace approach in terms of reaching God. And he confronted those that were steeped in the law. And the common idea was, well, you're talking about something against the law, something against this concept that we've been raised in as Jewish people. We are to obey this law. And Christ is saying, I have come and I have freed you from that system. In other words, there's a freedom there. 
So the Christian life introduces us a freedom, and we are no longer under the law. So you take it the next step, and some in the first century did, and I think that Paul encountered people like this. It's a distortion of the idea of grace. And the idea, now he's going to answer that, shall we sin that grace may abound? In other words, now do we kind of put away, and are we now anti-law? And that takes it, obviously, into the area of distortion. And uh, that idea is unbiblical as well. And Paul, even immediately, we won't answer all of this right away, but we'll look at it more carefully next next week. He says, in verse 2, may it never be. In other words, absolutely not. The strongest way in the Greek language to negate something, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, it's a contradiction in terms of who we are now that we are in Christ. And that's the basic answer. He's going to expand upon that in the following passage. We won't get into the detail today. I just want to introduce it to you. But this whole idea, in fact, why don't someone look up First John 3, 9. This gives you the idea that this was not only in terms of the circle that Paul ran in, but also John. John, I think, corrects this as well in First John 3, 9. Somebody got it? Connie? Somebody look up Jude 4, which uh, Jude as well. So you can see Paul deals with it, and uh, John deals with it, Jude deals with it, and I could give you other passages as well. This idea of, okay, I'm a believer, I'm free from the law, I'm not under the law, now I can totally do whatever I want to, this idea of freedom taken to the excess, I don't have to be concerned about sin, I've got my fire insurance, you get the analogy? Uh, the lake of fire, in other words, I've escaped, so I don't have to worry about sin anymore. He's going to answer that, and John does in 3.9. You got it, Connie? Whoever's been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. Okay, that's the believer. In other words, that's the new nature that he's describing there. And okay. he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Okay, now he cannot, that refers to the new nature. The new nature cannot sin. Paul's going to answer, well, where does sin come from in the Christian? There's two natures. Okay, John's not dealing with that aspect, but he's dealing with this concept of regeneration and the concept of new life in that new nature. The unbeliever doesn't have a new nature. All he has is the old nature. Go ahead and read the... the, uh, Jude passage. Jude 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, turned the grace of our God into lewdness. Turned the grace of God into what? Lewdness or lasciviousness is the New American Standard. Keep reading. And denied the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's the idea of Turning grace, this is what Paul is talking about here, into loose living is another way of understanding both your version and the New American Standard. In other words, I don't have to be any be concerned anymore about this concept of sin now that I have been freed and now that I have freedom. So that's antinomianism. 
that concept, that idea. And some have taken this freedom that we do have to that distorted extreme. Now, the other side of the coin is is what's called legalism. See the other side of the coin there? In other words, okay, now I'm a believer. Now those that are discipling me say, well, now you have to start doing all these things. And you come up with a list. Okay, you need to go to church more. You need to start reading your Bible more. You need to start witnessing to other people. You need to stop the drinking that you used to be involved in. You need to stop smoking, the stop dancing, and stop going out with women that do, all that, you know, the long list that you come up with. In other words, you're imposing a new law, basically, and now you're under the pressure to perform, and in fact, this is common, this is probably more common than antinomianism, It's more common that now I have to do all of these things because now I'm a believer. I think it all depends on your age and uh, the church you go to, which one they topple into. Yes. Yeah. And some churches emphasize one over the other. And both of them are unbiblical. And we'll see that particularly in this passage in uh, the book of Romans. So that's the legalistic idea. And you can come up with a list. And what this does, however, is what this does is it gives you kind of a checklist. So one of two things happen. Oh, okay, I can check that box off. I can check that box off. I'm still struggling with this one, but I'm going to overcome it. I'll check that box off eventually. Check this box off. It gives you a sense of pride. Oh, okay, I'm okay because look at this guy over here. He claims to be a believer and he's still struggling. He's still smoking or he's still doing all these negative things. Now I, you know, I overcome all those things. I'm better. Pharisaical. Pharisaical. That's that was a problem with the Pharisees. Good point, Connie. I went to a rich young man and he said, and he said, "What do I have to do?" And Jesus said, "Well, do this, this, and this." He said, "I've done all that since I was a kid." Yep. And Okay, Yeah, if you want to do it on the basis of your efforts, then you always fall short. And that's the other end. This also, because you can't meet, especially if you have a very detailed list, you can't meet all of the standards that are imposed, and now you feel continually under guilt. And that's not what God desires as well. So that's a common, and that's probably more common, that's probably the most common area that believers, particularly new believers, and sometimes older believers impose, because they've checked all the boxes, so they're okay, they're over here. You're still down here starting to check the boxes off. That's legalism. Jesus encountered, as Mary Lee has pointed out, this was the major problem with the Jewish culture, and the Jewish approach to trying to please God. The alternative is the concept that Paul introduces, the concept of grace. There's also what's called perfectionism, and this came from some denominations. The idea that the Christian life, you go along, probably checking off your boxes, And then uh, at some point in your life, you're convicted of that sin or that ongoing place that you're at. And maybe a crisis comes or you are convicted to some extent. And now you rededicate. Have you heard that? Now you rededicate your life. You start anew and you make a big commitment. And if it's sincere, 
now you kind of jump to this plateau up here, and now you are spiritual, and it's it's based on some of the passages in in scripture. What does Jesus say? Be ye, and it's primarily from the King James Version because it translates this word perfection or perfect. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? I think it's verse 48. Be ye what? Well, perfect. Be ye perfect as what? Your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? There's also another one. Somebody look up 1 John 1. Well, this is this goes against it. Let me give you some other verses. That one was Matthew 5, 48. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 is addressed to the believer. And if you translate the word perfect, it implies that uh, you can reach that state. And there's other passages that use that same word. Hebrews 10, 14, Galatians 3, 3, and there's others as well. But most of the, most of the verses, if you go to the King James, it translates it perfect. And in reality, that word can be used in that sense. In other words, that's the legitimate way to translate it. But it is probably best to translate it as mature or complete. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Be ye mature. In other words, grow up. And it's a process. It's not something that you necessarily reach all at once. In fact, in this life, we're going to find out, from our study, we don't reach that point of perfection. That's glorification that happens after we go to be with the Lord. And Paul's going to talk about that as well in chapter 8. So there's a whole theological position of what's called perfectionism. It's also in uh, theological circles described as the Arminian slash Wesleyan approach John Wesley had this idea, so it comes from some of that background. The problem with it, it is experience-based, an experience of some experience that you had. It, I think, is part of a charismatic approach where you have a second blessing. And, um, and I'm not saying that all charismatics believe in perfectionism or even have this concept, but that's part of this idea, kind of the second blessing idea. Now, theologically, and I don't think charismatics hold to this, but theologically, that position in its, I guess, purest form, believes that at conversion or some point after conversion, the sin nature is eradicated. Okay? That'd be nice, yeah. It will be eradicated, but not till, not happen until after the uh, coming of the Lord or after death. So how do you live with this one? You, you try real hard and you, you minimize sin for one. Oh, it's not that, you know, it's not that bad. It's not sin, you know, da 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 da. And some people live under the same guilt as legalism does. Okay? To go against it, first John, John deals with the issue in 1, 8 through 10. Somebody look that one up or have it. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Who is John writing to here? Believers. This book clearly is written to believers. If we say we have not sinned or do not have sin, what? We deceive ourselves. That's to a believer. Keep reading. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now that's a key, that verse 9, a continuous, ongoing attitude of when I do sin, in other words, the potential is still there, and in the, the flesh I still fall into that. The means by restoration is confession. We'll talk some more about that later. Keep reading. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, pretty clear. This is the same passage that says that the believer cannot sin. He's talking about two aspects here. See the two sides of the coin? The new nature is of a nature, if I can use the same word, that it is not capable of sinning. The old nature is not capable of doing anything other than sinning. So if I say I don't have an old nature, you could say if I say I don't have an old nature or a capacity to sin and in fact do sin, then I make God a liar and I'm deceived. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Same book, same passage, same author. So it makes sense that God, that Jesus is fully man. Yes. Is that how we get to be that those two natures? Partly. Partly, yeah. And the key, we'll see in a moment, is Jesus Christ. And by the way, on your outline sheet, I, we'll, we'll get to it. We're, I've got an outline within an outline, as you notice, like a lot of times I do. We're looking at that aspect. Yeah, we dealt with the questions. Uh, I'm giving you the approaches to the Christian life. And then next we'll get into the principles. And I'll give you an overview of the passage and an overview of the principles. Well, there's another way. There's another approach. Mysticism. This is common as well. This is experience-based. In other words, kind of an inner sense, an inner feeling. It's feelings-based as well. And I believe a lot of that is Christian mysticism. Now there's Eastern mysticism, which is totally unbiblical. But a lot of even uh, Christian mysticism, I think, is related more to the pagan idea of mysticism, and it's unbiblical as well. So be on guard of mysticism. Who would be more contemporary mystic? We can't think of a specific name that you would classify in that. There's kind of a mixture of that. We have a tendency towards this as well. Conservatives have a tendency toward it. What about this? You should be reckless. Not necessarily, no. Not necessarily. It's more experience. In other words, I have these experiences and I evaluate things based on my experiences rather than what's written in the Word. Key is what does the Word teach us? Okay? But what we will emphasize is a sanctification that is by grace that deals with all of the other issues raised by the other approaches as well. It doesn't have a name necessarily, but we can describe it as sanctification by grace. That makes sense? So just a quick overview. We've looked at the concept of justification, entering into a right relationship with God. Entering. Justification. In a courtroom, the ultimate courtroom, God declares us righteous. We've been stressing he does not make us righteous. We have the old nature that we had before, but now we have a new nature. That's justification. Now we're going to look, 6 through 8, at sanctification. And a quick overview, and we'll start to get into it next week. 
We have the principles. In other words, what are the principles? They're very simple. They're so simple that it makes it hard to implement. The principles are in chapter 6. In fact, I'll give you an overview of some of those major principles. Now, he's going to add to those in chapter 7 and 8, but the emphasis of chapter 6 are the principles. The emphasis of chapter 7 are the problems that we can encounter. He's going to deal with legalism right off the bat. He's going to deal with the issue of legalism. In fact, on your outline sheet, the first thing I have on there, the law cannot sanctify. You see that on your outline sheet? And then he's going to talk about also, what about good works? In other words, human effort. He's going to talk about that not sanctifying as well, or not promoting or not causing spiritual growth, not bringing sanctification. And then in chapter 8, he's going to give us the solution or power. If you want to use alliteration, principles, problems, power, chapter 8. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by coming up with a list of things. But there's power available in the Holy Spirit. And in that, when we appropriate that power, we're given power to be able to overcome the things that we face in life. Now, not everything is overcome instantaneously. It's still a process, but the more we implement it, the more we grow to maturity, and all of us are in the process of that growth. So that's a quick overview of the whole passage, 6, 7, and 8. So if you keep in mind principles, two problems, and power, and there's some other things that go beyond just the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 that we'll get to. Okay? A quick overview or a comparison contrast between what we've already covered and what we're going to cover so that you don't mix them up. And by the way, some of these other theological positions mix the two up to some extent. We want to make them distinct because I think the Bible makes them distinct. Paul is moving into another area here in chapter 6. In terms of sin... God has dealt with sin once for all. He's dealing with our guilt before a holy God. That's justification. Now, with the old nature, we still have the capacity to sin, but now it's an issue of what power are we under? Are we under the power of the old nature? Or do we have power to overcome that outside of ourselves that God is going to implement through the new nature? So there's a difference in relationship to sin. We still have the capacity, and if you're realistic, you know that you still do sin, in fact. Secondly, what is the basis? Well, we've seen that uh, the basis is what Christ has done on the cross, that now he's paid the penalty for my sin, and by him paying the penalty and taking the full judgment that I deserve, Now God can declare me righteous. It's based on what Christ has done on the cross. He paid the penalty on the cross. Now that extends to sanctification. It's still based on the cross. We'll see that in chapter 6. But now we have a relationship to the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be able to implement what Christ accomplished on the cross. So chapter 8 is going to emphasize the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we get further into it, several months from now, (laughs) 
when I get to chapter 7, you might do this ahead of time. In chapter 7, count the number of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned and contrast that with the number of times the word I occurs. I, 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 me, you know, I, Paul is describing his own experience here as a believer. I can't remember, I occurs, I don't remember, 38 times or something, the Holy Spirit, like once or maybe none. I can't, I'll have to look up the numbers. Contrast that with chapter 8. It flip-flops. Holy Spirit is prominent in chapter 8. Because seven, 7 is the problem, 8 yep. is the power. Yeah. If I'm going to try to do it, by obeying the law, by doing good works, in my own effort, I, 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 I. How does chapter 7 end? If that's the way you're going to do it, 24. If that's how you try to live the Christian life, under legalism or even antinomianism, you're going to end up wretched man that I am. What will set me free from the body of this death? Did I misread it? 24. Not what? In other words, not what key, but who, who will set me free. In fact, the picture there is I'm walking around with this dead body on my back. And that's me, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me after all of the eyes that you find in there? I just happen to be at the top of the page here for 16. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I, 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 me, me, me. This is the way that Paul is describing his experience. If that continues, you eventually get to a point where wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Chapter 8 answers that. And it's the Holy Spirit. What about the relationship to law? Remember justification, we stressed it over and over, and Paul says it in several of the passages, it's apart from law. The law does not justify. The law exposes my sin and shows me I can't live up to the law. What about sanctification? We're going to see the same principle. It's apart from law. That's chapter 7. It's apart from law as well. It's not a legalistic approach. So we're going to go against legalism. Not against the law. In fact, what does Paul say? The law is good. The law is spiritual. It's not the problem with the law. The problem is with me. I am incapable of sanctifying myself through the law. What is the means? Very simple again. We come into that saving relationship by faith and faith alone. No works. No human effort. How are we sanctified? We've already said it's apart from the law and it's a Apart from human effort, it's by faith alone. It's simple. He's going to talk about that. In fact, chapter 6, we'll get to that in a moment. So the means of sanctification is a continuous walk of faith. Remember the very beginning of the book of Romans when he outlines the whole book in verses 16 and 17? He talks about faith, and then he talks about living by faith. This is the living by faith aspect. Christians understand salvation is by grace, but we tend to live by works. That's right. Our tendency is to live by works, yeah. Exactly. We tend to fall into... We tend to live by works and not faith. Yes. Save by faith, but we don't... 
continue. Right. This is key. This is key. Very, very important. Number six, what about the timing? Justification is a once-for-all experience. The moment we were regenerated, the moment we were converted, the moment we were born again. These are all phrases the Bible uses. The moment we trusted for that first time in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Once for all. Sanctification is moment by, and I ran out of space on the slide there, moment by moment. Moment by moment. Day by day. Hour by hour. Week after week. Until we go to be with the Lord. So that's the timing. So there's a difference there. In terms of righteousness, we are declared righteous. Justification, can we stress that? That's the plus. Forgiveness of sin and declared righteousness. We're not instantaneously transformed. We're given a new nature that is transformative, and we have the potential now. But sanctification is the growth to become more and more righteous. That, that's the work, working in and working out and all the stuff that he talks about. Exactly, right. So it's a process. We make progress. So there's a contrast. Time is a contrast. What I started to say is law and means, they're identical apart from the law, apart from the law. The means is faith alone, justification, faith alone, sanctification. Now we have some contrasts or not so much a contrast in terms of righteousness, but a contrast in terms of time. Once for all, as opposed to moment by moment. Seventh, it's a process, or what is the process? In terms of justification, we are in a position of holiness, in a position of righteousness, in a position of a right relationship with God. From God's perspective, he views us as righteous, but sanctification is progressive in that it continues. That's that growth aspect. So there's your seven. That's for completeness. Now let me give you an overview, a more detailed overview of the passage and a quick overview of the principles. And I won't complete this today, but we can pick up where we leave off. But here on your outline sheet is a list of the major principles we'll deal with. So let's do it, do it rather quickly. Principles chapter 6. The main concept here is now we are identified with Christ. Now it begins in the first principle. He's already introduced us in chapter 5. And what do we say in chapter 5? That grace is available. A new way of living. Grace is available so that as sin reigned in death, ruled in death, even so grace would rule or reign or have impact through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember we talked about this? This is living the life. Righteous life in the context has that idea. I made a big point of that. Now it's living it out. It's not way in the future. So The first principle is grace is available. Grace underlies all of this. We've already seen some of that. Grace is available, 521. 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
The first principle to understand is this concept of being dead to sin. What does that mean? What does that mean? So we'll have to define that in more detail. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We'll look at that. We'll define that idea of baptism. Don't get confused. We have this idea of dunking in water. There's no water here. See any water in the verse? It's talking about a different baptism. Change it to identification or union. Do you not know that all of us who have been united, you might say, into Christ Jesus have been baptized or united into his death? There's a union there. But notice, do you not know? This is going to be very, very important. I'm going to stress this because this is, this is very key. The principle there is the knowledge of truth, the importance of understanding not only these principles, but understanding the ways of God, understanding how God works, understanding what Scripture teaches. This is why we are careful with Scripture. This is why we teach the Word sentence by sentence, so that you will understand concepts and This is the starting point, because the way we live is influenced by what is inside of us. That new nature does not automatically work itself out. The new nature is empowered by what we understand and what we know, and now we can claim as reality, as truth. So the knowledge of truth and the knowledge of these things that we're going to deal with in chapter 6 and on, are crucial. Because if we don't know these things, we can't implement them. So, understanding the scripture, that's why it's so important to remain in the word. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. That's step by step. That's moment by moment. That's living life out. So we might walk in newness of life. We might live a different way. That living a different way is based on what Christ has done. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We're going to talk about resurrection power being available. Knowing this, notice the stress again, knowing this. In fact, this concept of knowing continues on into the passage. There it is in verse 6. Knowing this. But skip over to 6-9. Knowing, see the concept of knowing, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, etc., etc., he wants us to know certain things. This is key. 16 and 17. Do you not know? In other words, you should, but do you not? He's asking the question here. 17. But thanks be to God that through Though we were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. This whole body of truth is important. And you can go on, 7-1, or do you not know, 7-1, verse 14, for we know that, verse 18, chapter 8, it goes on and on and on. So it's important. Knowing this, that our old self, what's the old self? 
that old nature that still resides, that our, that our old self was crucified with Christ. From God's perspective, when Christ died on the cross, those that have trusted in him are as if they were on the cross with Christ. That's key. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that's not instantaneous, that's a process, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's what we were locked into before we trusted in Christ. For he who has died is freed from sin. Well, let's stop there on your outline sheet. You're going to see we've looked at principle one, grace is available, knowledge of truth is a starting point. The key is unity in Christ. That's the key to newness of life, to living differently. Also key is dying to self, dying to sin, and it's possible. A new way of living is possible. In chapter 7, we're going to find out that good works, all my efforts cannot sanctify. That's the law cannot sanctify. Human strength, in my own strength, my willpower, it's not going to do it. Human strength cannot sanctify. And then the key, chapter 8, the Holy Spirit gives power for living. And the unbeliever has no access to that power. It's only those in Christ. And then he gives some assurance in the latter part of Romans 8. The assurance is with the security that we have in Christ. Those are some of the major principles. There's others as well. We'll develop them as we go through the passage. So the overview, we have the principles, chapter 6. We have the problems, and there's two parts there. The law cannot sanctify, and the flesh cannot sanctify. And then we have the power for sanctification. So there's your overview now. Next week we can do something else. But we won't. We have to it. Oh, we have to review it. Yeah. Okay. Unreview it. Closing thought here. Sanctification is a high priority. How we relate to God as believers. This is the rest of our lives, essentially. Very, very important. High priority in Paul. High priority in the New Testament. High priority in the whole Bible. Anyway, yes. before Penny left, she, she left a message that if we could please pray for her trip to Phoenix this Wednesday to Thursday to get busy. Okay, why don't you close for us and do that prayer. Lord, we just praise you. Uh, you're all powerful, all loving, and all knowing. Lord, we just thank you for your perfect plan. We just thank you for your word uh, that reveals that to us, your Holy Spirit. That speaks to us. Lord, I just pray to be with each of us uh, this week, Lord, and, and uh, have your light shine out, Lord. Help to be the... The, the, the light and the salt, Lord, uh, wherever we are, we're at work or in the grocery store. Um, I also want to pray for, for Connie's trip. We'll pick up Lizzie, Lord. I want to pray for those. And we know that uh, for being sick, Lord, I just pray that um, that you would be with them, Lord, and just help us to be examples. Um, we love you and pray. Amen.